Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, some big news out of Citigroup. Our good friends over there at Citigroup, former employer of mine. Uh, big restructuring. Uh, so give me some head count reductions. Uh, let's break it down with two people who really know this stuff. Uh, and that is Shanali Basak. She covers all Wall Street for Bloomberg News. And, of course, Allison Williams. She is our senior banks analyst uh, at uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. Allison, thanks. Uh, you join us. Zoom, uh, Shanali's here in studio. Allison, start with you. How big of a deal is this for Citi? You've covered this stock forever. So I think, you know, I would I would characterize it as a reorganization, um, perhaps versus a restructuring. Where yeah, that's good, good I point. think they're just really trying to, you know, clean up the reporting lines and and maybe help management to be a bit more focused, um, and also, you know, showcase. Uh, you know, as an analyst, I'm excited to get cleaner reporting where we can, <laughs> you know, finally see what's happening with their private bank with their wealth unit. Um, you know, there was some hints at this over the summer, just to end, and, you know, even prior, I guess, with some of the hires that they made. And I just think it's, you know, another step in, uh, in Jane's journey, if you will, in terms of just making this a cleaner, more focused banks and bank and hopefully getting to the efficiency that investors have, have long wanted them to get to. So, yeah, Shanali, yeah. yeah, I mean, is this going to help? Jane Frazier boost the stock price because that's bottom line, right? And I'm looking at, you know, over the last five years, um, they're down 30%, whereas Goldman's up 63%, Morgan Stanley's more than doubled. It's certainly a tough story for Citigroup. We have had her first set of uh, restructurings here, if you will, where she let go of certain consumer businesses around the world. And now what is difficult for Jane Fraser and their investors of Citigroup is that there are still a lot of, a lot of unanswered questions about this reorganization. One being how many jobs will be lost underneath the surface. Our sources say that there could be significant headcount reductions here because what Citigroup is doing is removing layers of management. And this only, this announcement 
only addresses the top two layers. The reality is, is they're going to be looking across management around the world, across divisions. One of the things they did in this reorg is they got rid of many of their regional divisions here. Okay. Mm. So the way you think about Citigroup now is that there's Citigroup North America and there's Citigroup International. And you now have five main business lines. It's no longer just the main two, which is institutional client group, as well as um, the consumer offerings. Most of that consumer business now now is the United States, North America. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there was a real reason that they needed to do this. Citigroup today does not look the same as Citigroup two decades ago when the mm. initial set of uh, current structure is what you see. In, in a way, you can see this as the most significant reorganization in, in two decades because uh, this is really getting rid of the groups that we have known for so long at Citigroup. Well, it strikes me, um, Allison, as, as it came out of my mouth, I realized probably Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley aren't the best comparison to Citi um, in terms of stock price performance. Um, you know, Wells Fargo over the last five years is also down, only 10%, not 30%, but also down. Bank America over the last five years is only up 8%. So not down 30%, but up 8%. Are those better comparisons for Citi? Um, I think they are. I think. At the end of the day, when we look at all of these banks, uh, you know, the way that investors think about it is, you know, the valuation is going to be tied to returns as it should be. Right. And so um, someone like um, someone like Morgan Stanley that you refer to, um, the comparison could you make could, that you could make is they've improved their structural returns through moving towards the wealth business. You know, looking at someone like J.P. Morgan, who's a very different bank. They're actually executing, you know, above all of their peers. You know, part of that is the scale that helps the profitability across their businesses, and they have leading returns. And so the struggle with Citi, and I think, you know, part of the reason why it, it's been tough for the stock is they just have not been able to improve the returns. And if you look across the group, their returns are the worst. Um, you know, Wells Fargo, um, you know, at, during certain periods of time, with all their big charges, had had some weaker returns, but they're sort of on the on the path to better profitability, and so that's really what um, Jane needs to deliver on at the end of the day. It is those returns, and I think why this is important is you know as you clear the structure, and you know that's been one of the biggest issues of City is all the bureaucracy and and really sort of a messy organization. But if you can get that cleaner and you can improve the efficiency of those core businesses, they do have some good businesses to work with, some high returning, what should yeah. be high returning businesses. Shunali, what do you think Jane Frazier wants the message to be about Citigroup? And I think like Morgan Stanley, I think of James Gorman, pivot towards wealth management, so successful. What do you think Jane Frazier would like that view of city to be you know on one hand it's simpler for james gorman to sit there and say we're an investment bank and we're a wealth and asset manager yep. for jane fraser it's a different story her goal here is to have all of her managers essentially get one message which is get leaner mm -hmm. they have one of the largest investment banks in the world but just take the m a business for example the reason i bring up the m a business is you are sitting there they are sitting at a 
at number six yeah. in the league tables. Actually, I just looked at it and got kind of stunned because they're behind center view, yeah. <laughs> which is which is a lot, you know, and, and that is in terms of deal volumes. Yeah. And that, you know, a year, two years, three years ago is just a stunning thing to see this late in the year. And so the share that they need to gain to keep those fees up, as well as squeeze every dollar out of the cost that they have, you know, it's a twofold story. It's one, get competitive and win. Two, be more efficient with every dollar we have to improve profitability. And so, uh, you know, the investment bank is a really good example because in this reorg, one open question among those five business leaders is who will run the investment bank over at City, the banking business. Currently, they have tapped an interim head, Peter Babe, who is the CEO at the Asia business. Yep. You have to consider this. This is one of the top five M&A businesses in the world. Yep. It is one of the hottest jobs <laughs> on Wall Street. And guess what? They have a huge IPO business, a huge yep. debt on ready business. And that person, you can't imagine, wouldn't one day be the successor for Jane Fraser herself. Well, yep. it, uh, you know, again, they have a consumer business that's quite large as well, but they have a massive investment bank and it is a, and, a seriously competitive spot. And my buddy Tyler Dixon, still running the investment bank over there. So he, but and he's- now under the new banking I head. know, that's interesting, but Tyler is just one of the smartest guys in the room, every room he's in. Shanali Bassick, thank you so much. Uh, uh, we got Allison Williams, thank you so much uh, as well. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade. Unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Lots going on here today. Uh, we want to pivot hard here, and we want to talk uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, and we want to talk drugs and all that kind of stuff, and we can do that. Well, and one of the biggest winners of the day. Biggest right? winners of the day. Stefan Bansell, CEO of Moderna. That is a NASDAQ-traded stock. MRNA is the ticker to put into your uh, Bloomberg terminal. You know, nobody, I guess when you sit around your, your Thanksgiving table, everybody likes to just complain about drug prices, right? Everybody does that. It's, it's across the aisle. But I turned it around a couple years ago and said, okay, we can do that. Because we, we always like to complain about drug prices. But these guys in the pharma and the biotech industry, man, did they come through 
with COVID. Yeah, I think actually as a society, we were all a little bit relieved. I'm like, in 12 months, these guys came up with a vaccine? I mean, who does that? But you guys did. Thank you very much. Thank you to the Pfizer folks and all the other uh, pharma and biotech folks out there that, man, did they come through uh, with that vaccine. Appreciate it. Now, what do you do with Moderna? Tell tell us, you guys have your R&D day today. You bring out all your new stuff for your investors, for your stakeholders. What's the big message for your R&D day today? Is that we're not a COVID company. And yes. Thank you for the kind words. Yes, but man, thank you, though. A Nemane platform company. Yep. And the platform is firing on every cylinders. Today, we're not seeing positive flu data in phase three. So if you think about it in terms of vaccines, we are three out of three. COVID working, RSV filed to the FDA, and today positive flu data. In cancer, we have now products showing 44% improvement versus the best drug available to patients today, which is immunotherapy. In melanoma, skin cancer, and we're gonna start before the end of the year, a phase three study in lung cancer. So okay. cancer, we really wanna transform as well. First, is, that, is that, by the way, um, because of mRNA technology. And I'll just remind listeners, we are talking with Stefan Bonsel right now. He's the chief executive officer of Moderna. And as you said, you're not just a COVID company. You did have an mRNA vaccine for COVID that um, maybe saved the world a lot more pain than it would have seen. But you also have a flu vaccine that is driving the stock up today, six and a half percent. And cancer, treatments that we hope we all hope i think are going to be successful and could drive revenue another 15 billion starting in 2028 so tell us about the mrna technology that we all kind of learned about a couple years ago sure so mrna as you learned about is an information molecule we basically code in that molecule what protein we want your body to make that will be your drug your medicine and in cancer now what we have shown is a huge impact on survival and being able to not have recurrence of disease compared to the best drugs available today to patients. And the third chapter for us after infectious disease vaccine and cancer is rare genetic disease. We are now three out of three rare genetic disease showing positive data in kids with those diseases that have no hope today, zero hope. All right, so back to the flu, because it's we're getting into flu season. What is your flu vaccine? What is new? What is different? What it, it, just tell us about what What's you guys are bringing. What's driving the stock today? Why, yeah, people, what, why are people so excited about the flu vaccine? Because first, we're going to be able to participate and provide a very high-efficacy flu vaccine. What we've showed in actually over studies is that actually it's as good as the best vaccine on the market for flu. But what people, I think, are excited about is the idea of combination, meaning we're going to show before the end of the year flu and COVID combined in a single shot. So in nice. the following years, you won't have to go and get a flu shot in one arm and a COVID shot in the other arm. They'll be combined. And then over time, we're going to keep adding more and more respiratory virus like RSV to the combination as well. So that you can have only one shot early in the fall at the pharmacy. And then you have a happy fall or in winter, you're not sick. So, but this is for next year. This is not for this current flu season. Okay, got it. Just Correct. want to get clear on the timing. You can still get your flu vaccine for this. Well, I'm going to go down to LL2 and get my flu vaccine. I mean, who doesn't do that? But uh, so with mRNA tech technology, what's it three to five years down the road? What do you expect that technology to tackle next? Maybe. Yeah. So we're announcing today at R&D Day that we should launch 15 
new drug in the next five years. 15 new drugs in the next five That's years. That's incredible across cancer, infectious disease, and genetic disease. We're also working on autoimmune disease. Think arteritis, Crohn's disease, and so okay. on. Uh, we believe we're going to bring 50 more drugs on top of 40 we have in development, okay. 50, five, zero, okay. from the lab into the clinic in the next five years, around 10 new drugs per year, moving from the labs into development. So what you see here is a true platform. There has never been platform in the biotech pharma industry. As you know, most drugs go to the clinic, yep. they fail. 90% of the drugs starting a phase one will never get launched, Okay. 90%. Look at Moderna, because of our platform, because mRNA is an information molecule, we are free out of free in vaccines, we are free out of free in rare genetic disease, cancer, incredible improvements, and it's just the beginning. All right, this is all because of the mRNA technology, and I have a funding question then. What happens if, um, you know, the COVID vaccine revenues don't meet your expectations? Can you still fund that kind of growth? Sure. I mean, if you look at it, we say that this year we should be six to eight billion dollars of sales, which is still a very significant number for turnover. We have 14 billion dollars on the balance sheet that we got through the COVID sales over the last two years. And so we can fund around, we think, 25 billion dollars of R&D growth by cash generating by the business and the balance sheet. And we will also not be shy to partner if we have to. We are obsessed about getting those drugs to patients to the finish line. But if you look at, for example, with Vertex, we partnered for cystic fibrosis for an inhaled mRNA, getting to the lung of the kids that have cystic fibrosis by inhalation. We developed that technology, yet another fourth cylinder for Moderna to develop a new family of drugs. And so that's what we're trying to do is push the boundary of science, get more and more drugs. And if we have to partner, we'll partner. But, but it, it's expensive to do. And, um, you know, because of recent legislation, the United States, the, um, the Biden administration passed, the United States is going to not only negotiate prices with drug makers, but set prices mm. uh, with drug makers. Um, is that a concern to you? Very much so. As the rest of the industry has voiced, you cannot set prices because R&D is risky. As we just talked about, 90% of drugs entering the clinic fail very, very high failure rate of the industry as a whole. If you start to set price and not look at value that is bringing by the drugs, you're going to reduce the ability of pharmaceutical and biotech companies to invest in innovation. And that's a big worry. But they're going to set prices. So how are you going to deal with it? So we just need to keep innovating and figure out ways to go after, you know, smaller disease type, uh, selling around the world. Because again, the US, of course, is the number one market in the world. But other markets are also very important, like Europe, you know, Japan. Uh, and so we're going to have to grow internationally as well. But it's a big issue. I'm worried about it. All right. How about, I always joke that in my next life, I want to come back as a healthcare M&A banker. Because every Monday we come in and there's another healthcare deal that you or one of your competitors do. Is there something that you need to buy in the next couple of years to get to where you want to go that maybe is not in your pipeline right now? No, what is cool about mRNA is we are the world leader in mRNA. Even BioNTech, which is a great company, they are doing small molecule, large molecule, a lot of different technologies. We are only doing mRNA. What we're doing through our BD activity is either buying, we bought a company in Japan over the Christmas break, that's a cool technology to make our mRNA operating system stronger and bigger so we can do more drugs. We announced on Monday a deal in cancer with a company in Germany that has very cool science and biology that we can code into the mRNA molecule to do new drugs. So this will do to expand the potential of 
impacting patients. All right, excellent to have you in here. Really appreciate it. And I know you're gonna go on television in just a moment. So uh, our, our listeners will be able to, to watch you with Alex Steele and Guy Johnson on the European Close. Um, just a fascinating yep. discussion and also a fascinating move in the stock, up 6.7%. Yeah, about that. Uh, Stefan Bansell, thank you so much for joining us. Stefan is the CEO of Moderna. Again, the ticker symbol for you stock jockeys out there, MRNA. We appreciate that. Thank you so much. All right, looking ahead of here at this market here, we are pretty much unchanged here. Uh, so, you know, we're going to be very interesting to see how this market, but, you know, Moderna, again, that stock, as you mentioned, Matt, up 6% uh, today, down 37%. Uh, year to date. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Ankur Crawford joins us. Uh, she's a portfolio manager and executive VP at, at Altra. Ankur, thank you so much for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, I just love looking at people's, you know, kind of how they kind of came up through the business. So, but uh, you've been at uh, Alger since September 2004. So you've seen some market movements. Um, what are you telling, what are you guys at Alger doing now? Stock market's up double digits this year. We've had a little bit of a bounce back off of an ugly 2022. Now what do we do? Yeah, I think it's not going to be quite as easy as it has been. Um, over the last nine months okay and we're going into choppier waters and in part because we're just waiting for the economy to respond and we just don't know the magnitude of how it's going to respond is it going to be a soft landing hard landing no yep. landing and I think no landing is coming off the table um, I think the expectation is now for soft landing and there's arguments for hard landing so I think because of that uncertainty in the market right now, the consumer resilience is starting to taper, the, the job market is starting to come off a boil, um, we're going to see a choppier market. Does landing imply cuts? I mean, in a hard landing, clearly you'd think the Fed's going to cut because that means we're in a, a bad recession. I don't totally know what um, soft landing means in terms of a Fed reaction. and, and does, but do they cut or, you just know, I know while. what a soft landing is like in terms of an airplane. I'm just saying like when you come down, yeah. right, and just set it down gently, I guess growth doesn't contract, but it's also not expanding at a massive pace. And does the Fed then cut or do they leave rates higher for longer? You know what? That, and that's the risk. They could actually leave rates higher for longer in that scenario. So it's funny because the, the, the people that believe that the Fed is going to cut and they're excited about the Fed cuts, I look at them and say, well, you know what? First, the economy has to get really bad if they're going to cut at this pace. I will warn you that Paul thinks that we're going to have a nice soft landing and the Fed's going to cut. Yeah, I'm a former equity analyst. I'm always, I'm very optimistic. Oh, tell me why. <laughs> yes, exactly. We, a former equity analyst with a floating rate mortgage. So yes. he would like to refi, you know? Maybe that's exactly. wishful thinking. Then. I know, I know, I know, I know. I've been accused of that before. All right. You know, we were just talking to Kaylee Lyons from Bloomberg Television. She's down in D.C. kind of reporting on this AI thing in, in Congress. How do you guys at Alger view AI? Because you could argue that's been a big driver of the performance this year. Yeah, we are very, very bullish on AI. We've been bullish on AI, and we think that Gen AI and what we're seeing with these LLM models 
large um, language models. Right? The large language models that are democratizing. Using your PhD in engineering. I like it. See, I like it. That it's basically democratizing technology, and it's going to create a step function up in adoption rates for all kinds of businesses, okay. um, through healthcare, industrials, tech. So highly bullish on AI. The adoption is going to be, we think, 30 to 40 percent by the end of this decade. Um, which is in any kind of industrial revolution that we've seen, it's the fastest adoption rate we're going to see. But will it hit the labor market? I mean, right now we saw unemployment come up to like 3.8%, right? Yep. But that was all because more people were coming back in. So it's still a very tight, very strong labor market. That's what we hear. Um, is AI going to displace a lot of jobs in the, by the end of the decade? I think it's hard to say, but just on the before we move on to AI, on the unemployment and employment, Walmart and Best Buy, both at the conferences this week, indicated that Walmart, we know, is, is taking down starting wages for jobs. They're um, taking down They're taking down wages. Really? Best Buy indicated that, you know, maybe they would do low single digits or worse than low single digits, which would be, you know, we, we think that means zero. Right. So wage growth is now starting to come off a boil, which is the first indication in the economy that employment's starting to turn. Interesting. So, so you see the labor market kind of flagging a little bit. Yeah. So, so if you look at hours worked, hours worked is coming off its peaks. It's been declining for a year, year and a half. Um, hourly wages, right now it's still rising. I think we start to see a moderation. But that's just on the employment side. So as, as for Gen AI and what the impact will be, what we're hearing right now is companies that are deploying Gen AI inside of their own businesses today, they're not firing people, but they don't have to hire as many people because productivity is increasing. So does it change the composition of the labor market and the demand for labor? It might, but what it means that we're gonna have to retool. We're gonna have to retool our, our economy and our workforce. Oh boy, that's just what a lot of folks want to hear, right? Ugh. First, they got not jammed, you and me. jammed by people going across, <laughs> jobs going across seas. Now they have to do this whole worry about AI. All right, when I think of Fred Alger Asset Management, or Alger, um, I think growth investors. Um, where are you guys looking? What sectors are kind of interesting to you? We mentioned maybe tech and AI and that type of thing. Where else are you guys looking for opportunities? You know, I think when people think of ai and investors think of ai they automatically say nvidia or yep. microsoft and yes we are invest we are big holders of both microsoft nvidia and the the common ai platforms but what they forget is that in order to deploy all of this ai we also need to be you know we need to build data centers okay um there are no data centers data centers are full we need electricity is that so data centers <clears throat> are full where are the data centers and why are they full? Well, in part, they're full because there's no electricity going to the data centers. And so there's going to have to be this CapEx cycle that supports the utilities to provide electricity to the data center. Uh -huh. um, and so, you know, there's a lot of interesting names, the, like Quanta, Quanta PWR, or, um, you know, we have an investment in a company called Virtus, yep. which is a cooling um, company. And so they basically... Uh, they provide widgets into a data center, and mm -hmm. one of those widgets is the new cooling mechanism that you're going to need for these Gen AI servers. So there's digital bridge. There's different ways to yeah. there's different ways to play this trend in industrials and and other parts of the economy that we're also focused on. 
That's interesting. You know, we did a big story about Mexico and how difficult it is to be reshoring there because they just don't have the infrastructure. Is that right? Okay. Right? And uh, I guess the same problem faces generative AI because you need to have a lot more giant server farms set up to run all the NVIDIA chips that are getting ordered. Well, don't we have a lot of flyover territory that put a big server farm out there? Yeah, but you got to put it up. I mean, it takes money, right? You need the bulldozers. You need all the cat equipment. Yeah, you know? that's and, what we're talking about. Um, you, and you got to put in the computers. So are I you concerned about valuation in this marketplace? Because a lot of folks say, hey, if you strip out the Magnificent 7, this market's not so expensive. How do you guys think about valuation? So we, we kind of do it as a sum of the parts and we look at the components. So you look at Microsoft. Microsoft currently trades at you know, on a ground, you have to look out to 2025 when they have a full blossoming of their their AI, or okay. at least they're on on way to that. It trades at a high teens multiple. Um, you look at Meta. Meta trades at a mid teens multiple. Mm-hmm. Google at a mid to high teens multiple on 2024 numbers. So, you know, there are portions of the market, big portions of the market, that actually don't screen as having necessarily an egregious valuation. Mm-hmm. Um, Look, now there's other portions of the market that, you know, one can say, you know, the the growthier stuff um, that has worked this year. Could it pull back? It could. Okay. Ankur Crawford, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Ankur Crawford, uh, she is a portfolio manager and executive vice president at Alger, uh, the asset management folks, uh, some good folks there. I've known them for a long time. And a doctor and an engineer. I know. You're listening to The Taint. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk IPOs because we got the IPO market. Actually, have a little interest out there. We're gonna, we got uh, Bailey Lipschultz. He covers all the markets for us. Uh, and then Kunjan uh, Sabani, he leads semiconductor analysts for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based out there in the beautiful San Francisco office on Pier 3 uh, down there in the Embarcadero. Uh, great stuff out there. He joins us via Zoom. Uh, Bailey, I want to start with you. Uh, Birkenstock. When I think Birkenstock, I think Matt Miller, you know, um, and they're going public. Talk to us about this company and, and what this deal is. Yeah, the company filed for their IPO yesterday evening, kind of an anticipated. Bloomberg had been all over that, expecting that they will target an initial valuation of about $8 billion. Looking at some of the results that they laid out, though, profitable, growing, the two things that investors are really looking for. They're L. Catterton backed. So uh, interesting deal um, laying out for this company when you look at kind of where we are talking to some of the analysts and investors, latest in a string of consumer facing companies that have filed. So consumer, if you're profitable, if you're growing and you have durability, some insight into where you're going going forward uh, seems to be one of the areas alongside tech that there is interest both from the company and from investors. All right, so that's um, that's nothing that Kunjan cares about. No, he's a lead semiconductor analyst. Yep. Um, maybe you're wearing Birkenstocks, Kunjan, but you're focused, I guess, primarily on ARM, right? Yeah, that's All right. right. Talk to us about this this IPO. ARM is a uh, tell us what ARM is and tell us kind of what the pitch is from your perspective. Yeah, so ARM is a semiconductor design IP company. They don't make chips; they make an IP which other chip makers can use and for creating chips historically their cost they have been they have the largest i mean entire market when it comes to a smartphone 99 percent market share so that's what they have very historically then when software bought, bought them the play was that iot is supposed to be this big thing so they got into iot they have internet of things their, right 
Internet of Things, yes. And they're still a dominant player in that market. The pitch right now for the IPO is really on AI, as is for every semiconductor company these days. <laughs> um, right now, they have single-digit market share in data center and AI, but the pitch is that that market share will grow, and they are expected to be the fastest growing when it, in that sector. All right, so, so, but, but, but Kunjan, you've been around. We, we hired you away from Deutsche Bank, so major upgrade there. Um, Kunjan, you've seen this stuff come and go. You know what yeah. the real deal is. They're asking me at the IPO to buy a phone chip design company but pay an AI multiple. Is that is that the gig? That is almost yes. <laughs> okay. Are, are you buying it? Um, so when they came out with the initial target of 60 to 70, we wrote that this seems very ambitious, okay. given exactly one of the reasons what you pointed out. Um, but the pricing that they came out, which is midpoint of 50, uh, we liked that as a starting point. We, uh, we thought that would invite some attractive, positive discussions from the investors. And it seems from the data we have heard that they are numerous times oversubscribed. So that seemed to have worked. Uh, but yes, to answer your question, I mean, look, this happens, I, w I was also in banking before, so I've done IPOs for semi-companies, and this is how usually the conversation goes during <laughs> IPOs. People are pitching way far out, like what this can be in five years. And the theory is, if you believe that thesis, you're buying it today for lower, because once it gets there, once they have a lot of data center revenues, they're gonna get a lot more premium for their valuation, and that's where investors can generate their return. Very good. Hey, Bailey, Birkenstock. I mean, it's is. What's the pitch here? Is it? Just, is this going to be a lifestyle kind what of? Are they going to be five years out? Yeah, we're. I mean, the same thing as they are, were fifty years before. <laughs> I mean, what's changed? No, I mean they were in the Barbie movie, so that reinvigorated oh. interest with the youths. Um, when you look at their sales, they're one of the things that stood out in the filing is kind of this push towards direct to consumer sales. So trying to cut out the cost of going through a traditional brick and mortar or other kind of website. When you look at it, though, $8 billion price, about 18 times forecasted uh, adjusted EBITDA. So in line with a Nikes of the world, though, um, margins are typically higher for um, Birkenstock. It is going to be interesting, though, what they pitch comps at, though. You look at Decker's brands, the one that comes to mind, uh, talking to a couple analysts, maybe a Lulu could be really seen as the high end, but it's going to be an interesting, more kind of typical IPO in terms of consumer facing company that doesn't have these ambitious kind of pitch in terms of AI or massive hockey stick growth. But do they have to uh, pull back their pricing ambition the same as we've seen with ARM and others? I mean, uh, are they, is this a down round for everybody? No, because this was bought uh, by El Cadetan private equity house backed by a luxury group LVMH for essentially 4.3 billion US dollars. So this is actually kind of on the, the growthier side, which at least in terms of the arm deal where SoftBank bought them at, which right now would be implied at about a 70% return, they're actually seeing marks up to the positive as opposed to Instacart, Clavio, the two IPOs that are set to price sometime next week who are taking quite mm. the haircut. Kunjan, it is a down round for arm in a way, right? Because SoftBank just bought a 25% stake from itself for much more. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yes. So, so if you take that as a benchmark, it is a down round. Yeah. But why? What? What? What happened there? What? What's the deal? I mean, um, they didn't uh, publicly say a lot, but it seemed to. Uh, it, what we infer from it is two things: that Arm doesn't think 
Softman thinks that ARM is just getting started. So there will be a lot of more opportunities for them to come on with follow-on offerings at much higher valuation, especially when that data center part becomes a larger portion of the revenues. All right, so, uh, 30 seconds, um, Kunjan. What, what, what's your feeling about AI? Are you drinking the Kool-Aid like everybody else? Um, fundamentally, it definitely seems to be here to stay. Um, I, I don't know, it's too soon to talk about valuation, right? <laughs> it's, it's barely been seven months since yes, really yes. we started talking about it. But fundamentally, it, we definitely see real activity and sustainable demand going here. All right, Kunjan, next time you're in New York, you have to stop by here and see Matt and I in the studio. We haven't met but, you yet, so you got to But, but since you're out there in San Francisco, where are you on, Pier 3? Yeah. Is that where you are? Yes. There? Yes, I am. Yeah. you got to go over. There's a market um, down the street that has a Slocum and Humphrey or Humphrey and Slocum ice cream place. Yep, right down the end. They have a flavor called Secret Breakfast, and I'm going to go ahead and recommend that. <laughs> Secret Breakfast. All right, so we got that going, and Tadich Grill as well for uh, the Eats. Kunjan Sabani, uh, tech analyst for BIN San Francisco. Bailey Lipschultz covering the markets for Bloomberg News. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Well, a lot of folks, I think, probably came up in the business kind of thinking about that 60-40 portfolios being kind of ideal stocks and bonds, but... A lot of folks, you know, been over the last decade plus have been saying, hey, you can juice returns if you go with alternatives. Put that into your a mix somewhere, you know, maybe 10% or something like that. But one of the risks of alternatives is the less lower liquidity and sometimes, you know, illiquidity. Our next guest tries to address that issue. Brian King, he's the CEO of Lotus Markets. Uh, he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Brian, welcome. Talk to us about Lotus Markets. What do you guys do there? What do you, what what are you trying? What market demand are you trying to meet? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, we are essentially a stock exchange for alternative investments. We're actually registered as an ATS, which functions a lot like a stock exchange. Um, but to the point that you just made, most 
alternative investments uh, are largely illiquid, um, and we're seeing this massive shift um, of where most alternative investments have historically been invested um, in by major institutions, and the pendulum is 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 moving more to individual investors. And you know, the closer you get to a true retail investor, the more important liquidity becomes. And so that's really what we're doing is we're we're allowing the opportunity to match buyers and sellers of these illiquid assets. All right. So, how was it done before? Like. How did you, could I just not get liquidity in the past? Or how does this, how does this work? Give me an example, maybe a trade or the types of trades you guys facilitate. Yeah, so uh, we started our market in the registered fund business. So they're registered filing K's and Q's, but they aren't um, listed on an exchange. Um, in many cases, these funds were completely illiquid, so you, you couldn't have a liquidity event until the fund decided that there was one. Um, in some cases, maybe you could pledge your shares into a redemption queue and then they would buy back your shares. But <clears throat> the, for the most part, though, um, if you needed you had like an urgent need for liquidity. Uh, you would call up a broker. The broker would try to find the other side of the trade. They'd give you a dramatically deep discount of, you know, 50, 60%, and you would pay a 10% commission to, to do that. So you get ripped off. <laughs> yes, your face is literally ripped off. And you, I mean, and that's part of what drove you to create this, right? Because exactly. what happened? Did you get ripped off before or you didn't want to get ripped off when you needed liquidity or what, what happened? Yeah, so um, I do have some very specific experiences in my past, not me directly, but family members and others that uh, that were kind of locked up into um, alternative investments. And so for them, uh, situations, um, specifically during the financial crisis, Oof. they were looking to get out. They wanted to be able to get in front of, of it. And ultimately, some of these funds went completely belly up. And so... You know, you, you, you live with those moments and you see that type of a, of a situation occur and you want to be able to say there's, there's got to be a solution for it. Okay, so if you, if you, you know, facilitate a trade on your exchange, how do you get paid? What's kind of your business model? So we, uh, right now, it doesn't, the sponsor doesn't get charged anything. The buyer doesn't get charged anything, but we do charge the seller a 3% commission. So it's not nothing, yep. but these, these are illiquid. So um, that's, that's the charge that we, we typically take is 2.9%. And how do you find the buyer? How do you find the other side? You just, you have relationships with people that buy and sell these types of investments? Yeah, there's a lot of natural buyers of alternative investments. You can think of a lot of institutions like insurance companies, hedge funds, um, What's private What's the transaction equity. size for you? So it, it can range. Uh, so it, it can be all the way. We're an ATS. It's actually a. What's an ATS? Sorry, uh, ATS is an alternative trading system. Okay. So if you think, so my background, I was part of BATS as a startup company. Um, BATS was an ATS before it became an exchange. Um, it, it functions a lot like a stock exchange, but isn't regulated in the same way. It's, it's a little bit different. And this is how you, you have a lot of experience at BATS, at yep. uh, NYSE. and. That's right. Um, this is how you not only know how to find buyers and sellers, but how to put the infrastructure together. Because that, I, I have to guess, is also an important part of it. That's exactly right. So we're a technology company at our core. Um, so you, you build the technology, you build the framework. You know, we're highly regulated both by FINRA and the SEC. Um, and so there is a lot that goes in, into it. But yeah, we're, you know, my background comes in um, helping to match buyers and sellers and, and finding those institutions. And then we also have a lot of RAAs and family offices that say, hey, we've already invested some of our clients' money in this. And so we would be, in many cases, wanting to buy more of it. And if you could buy it at a discount, that's even better. So, I mean, I've read you're the third biggest ATS in the country and you've got some big players on your platform. Um, Let's just look at the list, Blackstone, Starwood, Deutsche Bank, funds. How big 
is the platform if you put all those assets together? Yeah, so I think uh, if you if you added up all the the assets that are on the platform, it'd be around uh, 200 billion um, that we're trading today. But uh, we made an announcement a week ago. Um, so again, I talked about the registered funds is where we started, but we just launched our first private real estate um, uh, fund group, Walton Global, um, is now listed on our marketplace. We had um, four different um, you know large transactions in that, but that was the for our first foray into private real estate. Private real estate is a fourteen trillion dollar marketplace, so it's a it's a it's a wide addressable market. But what do you mean by private real estate? It's not like the Fine. Sweeney the Sweeney Ranch on the Jersey Shore. I mean, what are you talking about? Yeah, so a lot of times you have sponsors that put together private real estate um, uh, deals. Uh, they raise capital from you know large investors. Typically, you have to be accredited to to invest in those types of investments. Um, and so they put those deals together and typically you have to wait for the sponsor to have a liquidity event before you yourself can find one. So we're now starting to work with sponsors to help them find liquidity for their shareholders. Because, that wanted all right, if I were a shareholder <laughs> in one of those things and I'm looking around Manhattan, I need to get out of this thing. Cause I think when XYZ building on third Avenue trades, it's going to trade at 50 cents on the dollar. So you're getting into a marketplace that is going to have incredible volatility. I would say over the next five to 10 years. Is so, that how you view? I mean, yeah, I, I do agree that there are some segments of commercial real estate that are going to be very volatile. Um, and there's, there definitely, if you're looking at New York, you're looking at San, um, it's San Francisco. Those places, when you're looking at commercial real estate office buildings, they're they're really in, in a tough spot. I think the biggest thing that they have right now is the financing, right? Um, the, the the sponsors themselves trying to find the ability to refinance yeah. those deals. It's going to be really challenging, but not a lot of volatility. <laughs> if you're looking in like uh, the Columbus, Ohio metropolitan area, of course, looking at student housing, yep. looking at medical offices, yep. looking at movie theaters, multifamily sure. is going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, multifamily is okay. having like some real success though too as well. Yeah, exactly. All right, who, who do you compete against? There aren't any. Uh, there aren't many direct competitors. Um, you know, Nasdaq uh, has a private funds division um, that they are. Uh, they're, they're successful, but we don't compete head to head right now. The things that they do, we don't, and mm -hmm. most of the things that we do, they don't. Uh, so there's, um, so, so there's, it's just now people starting to move into this space. So it's a, it's a great opportunity, right, to be kind of the first to do it. Now, do you put up capital to facilitate facilitate these trades, or are you just simply a, a broker? We're an we're agent? agents. We're, we're, agency. we're agency. Yeah. So okay. we're we're not buyers or sellers of the asset. We're matching. And again, an and average sellers. transaction size for you on average. Uh, Let's say a hundred to five hundred thousand okay. dollars um, is probably the, the average, and um, the the more private it gets, uh, the larger the 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 size of the transaction. And how many trades do you do a day or something like that? Uh, it it varies because it's an illiquid market. It yeah. varies. It, it, you could have a a couple a day, or you could have you know twenty a day. Um, but it's how long does it take you to kind of execute a trade? I mean. It's not like me back at Payne Weber pushing my button for Alliance and I'm dumping my 400,000 shares of you know XYZ stock to Alliance. Yeah, so it's actually, we do, um, it, we, we've set our marketplace up in a very okay. traditional way. All right, thanks oh. so much uh, for joining us. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
talking a lot about AI, and for good reason, we've got, uh, as we just heard from Elon Musk, Elon Musk, and a lot of other tech leaders, CEO types, uh, down in Washington, D.C., meeting with a select group of uh, senators, talking about AI, kind of an education process, if you will. So, uh, you know, AI in the overnight has become uh, the front and center for global Wall Street and global regulators as well. And we want to continue that conversation today with Ashley Still, Senior Vice President and General Manager for Creative Cloud and Document Cloud at Adobe. Uh, Ashley, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, again, a lot of attention on AI uh, now today down in Washington, D.C. Some of the regulators trying and some of the uh, politicians down there trying to get a little bit educated by some of the tech leaders. How do you folks at Adobe approach AI in your business? Well, first, Paul, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you today. Um, and as you said, AI just has huge power to, um, to enable many things. And at Adobe, what we're really focused on is how AI can accelerate creativity. We believe every human is creative. Everybody has a story to tell. And, uh, and we're using AI to enable anyone to create content uh, and to share their story. The way that we do that is through Adobe Firefly, which is our family of creative generative AI models. And we are announced today that Firefly is now generally available after a very successful beta. It's available both as a standalone web application, so anyone that has access to a browser and can type in a simple text prompt can create content. But it's also now built into the fabric of our incredibly powerful creative tools like Photoshop and Illustrator so that professional creators and designers can use AI to add expressiveness and bring their ideas to life in even richer ways. And actually one of the the concerns, early concerns of, of AI and its applications, we're seeing it play out in Hollywood a little bit. A lot of the uh, the writers uh, are, are concerned about AI. They're concerned about a number of things, but one of them is AI. How do you think about just how the protections around the content that can be created through AI. How do you expect that to evolve? Does Adobe have a, a, a point of view on that? Absolutely. So first, we've been really thoughtful about how we even train our models. And there are different approaches out there with different AI services. The approach that we take is we only train our models on content that we have licensed to. Uh, as well as content that has an open license on the internet. And this is different than going out and kind of scraping the internet, which has a lot of implications for artists' rights and, uh, and, and their protections, right? So obviously Adobe, we, we uh, are very passionate about our role in, in advancing creativity and being a part of the creative community. And it really starts with how we're going about training uh, our models. It doesn't stop there. Uh, we build those protections into our services, right? So uh, for example, artist style is something that is very concerning right now to the creative community and you referenced Hollywood. People spend, uh, uh, you know, a decade or more developing their style, whether they're in Hollywood, whether they're in advertising, whatever it might be. And, and there's real concern about AI's ability to transfer that style instantaneously. 
Uh, we build that protection into our products, and we also are supporting regulation um, to protect artist style as well. So what, at Adobe and Firefly, give us some examples of, of kind of how your technology is used, maybe who uses and what, and what do they use it for? So we're building Firefly across our family of applications and uh, and our mission Adobe is creativity for all. We have applications that anyone can use. Again, I referenced uh, firefly.adobe.com. That's a new web application that is a playground for anyone that, that wants to explore creative expression using AI. All you need is a browser and and the ability to to write simple text prompts and you can create images, you can create text effects, uh, and really anyone can use that. Um, but we we also have Adobe Express, which is uh, an all-in-one creativity application where where you can uh, uh, create text to image as well as text effects, create posters, flyers, social media posts. Uh, again, so people that want to uh, uh, generate content easily can can use Adobe Express. And as I mentioned before, um, we are really deeply building AI into our professional workflows across Photoshop, Illustrator, and more applications will be coming soon. What this does for our creative professional community is increase the value of our applications. It enables them to ideate faster and be more productive. And who's a typical user of, of your products? Is it, I mean, like how much of your customers are they, individuals versus corporate that kind of thing who's a typical user and who do you think how do you think that'll evolve it ranges right I, it it's we have uh we're we're in uh we're very fortunate that we have an incredibly broad customer base whether it's students our products are used in k-12 schools uh of course creative professionals and creative professionals they often work for themselves or they can work for the largest companies in the world um, and what we're really seeing across the board is whether you're a consumer or whether you're a professional the demand to create content to tell your story is continuing to explode businesses every business is a digital business and they need content to power how they're engaging with customers uh, across channels, whether it's TikTok or YouTube or their own website. And certainly from a com consumer standpoint, I mean, I just look at my own kids. They create content all the time. And, uh, and it's to make people laugh. It's to express an idea, whether it's with friends or at school. And so we serve all of those needs. And what's incredibly exciting about Firefly and AI it's enabling us to serve all of those needs in unique and new ways. And so it really expands the tent of who can create. So what's the next step, do you think? What's the next new thing you guys are working on at Adobe as it relates to AI? Absolutely. So we continue to advance our, our core models um, and, and you know, it's still early days, right, in, in the era of generative AI. And so the quality, the breadth, and the depth of, of those models continues to evolve. And that just gives us the ability to bring rich capabilities across all of our applications. Um, we also are working on uh, new media, right? So we're, we're doing uh, great research in video and 3D and how, again, we bring the power of AI to 
all of the types of media that people create through our applications. Um, so stay tuned for, for more on those. All right, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Ever-changing, that's for sure. Ashley Still, uh, she's a senior vice president and general manager uh, at the Creative Cloud and Document Cloud uh, business over there at our good friends at Adobe. Uh, so interesting stuff there. And again, AI kind of hitting pretty much every part of the economy, it seems like, when you listen to some of the, the use cases. But certainly when it comes to content creation, uh, that's where the opportunities are, and that's where, for a lot of people, the potential risks are. And we're seeing that, uh, again, play out with uh, the Hollywood writers. Uh, one of the things they're looking at is maybe some protections from uh, AI uh, impacting their business and getting credit for what uh, they actually uh, create. So uh, keep an eye on that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.